How'd you, you don't leave the house. How'd you lose your glasses? I, I left the house. God damn it. <laughs> well, okay. I'll never, you, you know what? I'll never make that mistake again. Yeah. Oof. I hope we've all learned important lessons here today and we can, uh, we can go forward with positivity and enthusiasm for our agoraphobia. Let's just uh, continue to inhabit this six, 700 square foot space from now on Look. and just to not have greater aspirations to inhabit the world. Look, even if you just rent a place in like South City, you and 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 uh, the inhabitants of your home should vacate for a few days and go spend a, spend a weekend in somebody else's house. It's great in the desert. Highly recommend. Desert life is good. Go on a vision quest. Where'd you leave your glasses, Brad? Somewhere in or around the Safeway near my house. Don't you need them to see? I had contacts in for the first time in eighteen months. Oh boy! So I, I had some family and friends in town, and we were doing a big uh, picnic in Golden Gate Park. Uh huh. I was walking over there. I had contacts in because I wanted to wear sunglasses. That's sunglasses are cool. Also, it, it's really weird putting contacts in for the first time in in like literally since before the pandemic started. I had to stop wearing them like five years ago because they they were giving me bad headaches no matter what the prescription Gee. was. Con- contacts are I I I am not convinced they are worth the downsides. My ophthalmologist thinks that they made my corneas thin. Yikes. Wow. Yeah. That's an interesting. Okay. Maybe Which then prevented me from getting LASIK. But that's yeah. it. As he said, that's not science. That's just a theory. That's intuition. Yeah. Um, anyway, long story short, I, I put my glasses in a case and brought them with me in case these were 24 hour contacts. So I was like, whatever, if I just throw them in the grass and put my wow. glasses on, it'll be fine. Literally Excuse me, a trash can. Excuse God me. God damn it, Brad. It, it would have been a trash can. I assure you. <sighs> Anyway, I had I put the glasses in a case and put the case in my hoodie pocket. Oh, yeah, that's a mistake. and then stopped. Yes, it turned out to be which I actually told myself as I was doing it. I was like, hmm, I wonder if these are going to fall out of here. Oh, well, let's go. Oh, boy. And then I went inside the Safeway and bought a case of beer and then uh, half a block past the Safeway coming out. It's a hell of a picnic. So there were, it was, there were like 30 people. Oh, OK, uh, I, I half a block down the street. I realized the case was no longer in the hoodie. Have you called Safeway? I, I, yeah, I checked Lost and Found like for oh, a couple of dude. days afterwards. Nothing. I But I also spent at least an hour with this case of beer under my arm going up and down the street and all through the store retracing oh. my steps and never turned up anything, which really made me wonder, like, did somebody pick up a case with glasses in it and take off with it? Why would somebody do? Why would somebody want prescription glasses? Hey, man, you, you, some, you got bad vision. I got I got some glasses for you. Try these and see if they work. It's like when you call the locksmith and instead of coming to unlock your lock, like you lock yourself out of the car, you call the locksmith instead of them coming with like lock picks and or like what a a shim, a slim gym. They -hmm. just come with a big sack of keys for every like, like Uh literally had my dad locked himself out of his car one time and the locksmith came and he just brought a sack of Ford keys. And wow. he was like, yeah, the door keys are only like five tumblers. So if you keep working at it long enough, eventually you get one that works. Wait, are you kidding me? And he literally went through a, a, probably 200 keys before he hit one that worked. Okay. That's okay, that's a decent ratio. Like, I, you know, I didn't expect every single key out there to be unique, but I yeah. would have thought that there were more variations than that. So the thing is the, the door keys are fewer number of tumblers than the ignition keys. Okay. And the okay. ignition keys, this was <laughs> before they started doing the chip thing on the keys. Yeah. But on the modern cars, the the ignition's keyed, so it like talks to a crypto chip on the on the key before it uh, sure. before it'll actually engage the ignition. Uh, you know, I mean, like 
yes, it's good to have an extra safeguard to stop somebody from starting the car and driving it away, but getting into the car still pretty bad, depending on what you have in there. Well, as he said, the whole point of this is that locks are just to, to dissuade people who are mildly criminal. <laughs> yeah. Like if somebody actually wants to get in your car, all they need is a, is a brick and about 10 seconds. Yes, a tire so, iron. Yeah. Uh, are there, are there genuinely keyless cars now? Like, are there, are there cars that, that literally do not have a mechanical lock on them? Like so just, my, just the, just the fob, just the wireless. My car like, is just the fob. The bolt really? is just the fob. Like I, I'm but surprised there's no like physical mechanical press f- the button. Oh, there's a secret key inside the fob. Wow. Okay. Um, but the key doesn't work the car. Like the, the car all starts, there's an NFC thing in the fob that, that like when you get inside the car with the fob, it's like, oh yeah, okay, the button works now if you press the brake when you press it. There's no twist. Seems like you'd always want that mechanical fallback, but it seems important if the battery dies, because I don't think there's a way, like if you can't get in the car to do the hood release to charge, you know, there's still a 12 volt battery. Right. Because like the, the, the batteries that make the car go doesn't, don't run the remote start and all that stuff. So. Like if you, if you didn't have a way to get in the car, to open the hood, to jump the car, if the battery dies, I don't know how you would get into it. That's, that's what I mean is that like anything electronic, there's always going to be some point of failure, right? That might render it inoperable. You know, what always works is tumblers, metal on metal. Yeah. It's, there's a, there's a cover. I I hit, there's a little thing that pops off the door handle on the car that gives you access to the keyhole. You can't see it normally. It's weird, but you know what you can find? What's that? All over the place. Well, you could for a long time. Now the hipsters have come for it, Brad. Oh. Cast iron. Oh. You know, if you want to get a really nice, expensive, like all clad or some fancy nonstick pan, it's going to cost you a few hundred bucks. Mm-hmm. But for a really long time, you could go to any junk shop in the South and walk back into the back, usually in the dark corner. And there'd just be like piles and piles of old cast iron skillets and fryers and and like griddles and all that stuff. And they'd be like four bucks. Wow. Like bad shape ones, like, like rusted needing, needing resuscitation. Usually it was a mix. Like, okay. like, you know, some, there'd, there'd definitely be the $1 pile, which is all the rusty ones. And then there'd be like the four or $5 pile, which was like anything from like, you know, old Widmer smooth skillets where they, where they'd actually machine the cast iron down. So it was all smooth and, and awesome. Or like just, you know, like your 20 year old lodge, whatever, you know, the lodge style cast iron Are the smooth ones better. We have, mm-hmm. we have, so we have my grandmother's old cast iron skillet that could, for all I know, it could be 75 years old at this point. And it's great, but it's one of the, it's got the dimpled kind of like the texture, textured surface. It's yeah. not, it's not one of the ones that is like, polished down to a mirror sheen so i have both i have a fryer that's like the lodge style that we bought 20 years ago now probably um and then i have one that my mom found for me in a in a junk shop in central virginia that's one of the widmer smooth smooth skillets um i feel like the lodge one is easier to maintain and you're less likely to fuck it up I'm always live in terror because the one that the smooth one is like shiny silver on the edges and everything. It's like, it's awesome. It's really cool. It is. I'm much more careful with how I use it than I am with the other one. That's, you know, like living in terror is how I would describe my entire relationship with cast iron. Like (laughs) seriously, there's like a very high skill floor on that stuff. It's like, this thing is incredible. And the best thing you can use if you know how to use it. But if you don't look out, cause you're probably just going to ruin it. Well, so, 
Um, as often as the case with food related stuff, Kenji at Serious Eats did a really good here's how to not fuck up your cast iron article like 10 years ago. And the gist is like everybody says, don't put soap and water on it. You can put soap and water on it. Just don't do it all the time. And if like you notice black stuff starting to flake off, obviously stop whatever you're doing. Um, the, the main thing is instead of using like, you don't want to use anything that's too abrasive. Like a scotch bright pad is probably as much as you want to go. And uh, you usually I use just like kosher salt and oil to clean it if it gets stuff crusted on. And that that abrades off whatever the stuff is without eating into the surface. And then you heat that back up again and the oil kind of cooks off and burns burns into it and makes the surface even better. Yeah, you don't want to ruin your seasoning, right? Oh, man. The seasoning is all. That's, why, that's what you're there for is that seasoning. Seasoning is the spice of life, you might say. Are you trying to end the, 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 this was the end. That was, well, it, was I, it could be the end. Seasoning is the spice of life is a good end. I didn't say it in ending voice though. Uh, you know, here's another one. Okay. Uh, look, okay. Give me, give me another take. Go check out Kenji's uh, primer on, on cast iron because people shouldn't live in fear of their cookware. I think the seasoning is the spice of life was better though. That's, you know, people, what they say seasoning is the spice of life. Perfect. <laughs> Welcome to Brad and Will Made a Tech Pod. I'm Will. I am Brad. How are you doing, Will? I'm, uh, you know, Desert Life Appeals. I get yeah. this. You see, it seems like week by week, it's just growing on you more. You're never going to come back, are you? I I mean, I, I didn't go swimming this morning because I felt lazy. What? what? I know, but I went okay, swimming last wow. night at like 11 o'clock. Well, so. okay, huh. Okay, 11 o'clock swim sounds incredible. It was pretty good. Being too lazy to get in the pool, though, that's just like you were now, you were just, you were taking your good fortune for granted. Well, okay. So what happened was by the time it was cool enough, uh, by the time I was uh, like awake and like ready to get in the pool, it was too sunny for me to go out without sunscreening. Okay. That is reasonable. And I didn't want to like have to come in and then take a shower and stuff before we did the podcast. So I'll go in at like lunchtime for like 20 minutes. Is okay. What, what the next so yeah, like be. I started to say like. You know, what's what's your what is your sunburn threshold? Like, couldn't you just go out there for a few minutes without sunblock? And then I remembered you have the same fair complexion I do where you <laughs> five minutes is too much. Well, we got a, a Gina. Gina was like, I'm going to get rash guards for this that are SPF 100. What is a rash card? It's like a shirt that's made of stuff that's supposed to get wet. And it's usually pretty tight. Huh. So, like, imagine a Lycra. Imagine a you wear them if you're around coral reefs so that you don't fuck up the reef when you touch it by accident or cut yourself. Um, but yeah, so it's like a, it's like a shirt that surfers and snorkelers and stuff wear and there, it doesn't let the sun through. So I don't have to sunscreen my back or my shoulders or my arms. I just do like neck and face and legs, which means that it's like what is normally a 30 minute process or 10, 20 minute process is like a five minute process. Anyway, rash cards. Yeah. Yes. What's for dinner. I'm still jealous of your pool. We talked about it a little bit on last month's patron episode. If people aren't at the tier where they can yes. hear that in the episode appropriately entitled pool before coffee, we talked about how you have been going in the pool before you have coffee, which 
It's a good way to live. I'll just I I'll understand keep, this I'll, now. I'll, I'll keep saying it. I have never wanted to own a swimming pool in my entire life until you floated the idea of getting in the pool within five minutes of waking up every Look, morning. Th- this whole thing is Gina's low key way to trick me into what like, I've always been like, no, the best thing to have is a friend with a pool. I don't need a fucking pool. No. And so it's a maintenance nightmare. They're a problem. Just give me just give me access. Uh, but then just being able to walk out with like my bathrobe on then swim trunks and jump in the water. Pretty good. You know, I'll, I'll just as a coda to this conversation before we get into the topic. Yeah. Uh, at the very barbecue I mentioned in the cold open. Mm hmm. I was talking to a friend who has a swimming pool Mm. who was just talking, who was just complaining about the $15,000 repair that they had just had to do to their swimming pool out of nowhere. I mean, look, if you you own a house, I, everybody who buys a house, I'm like, here's the thing you need to know. You need to have like 10 or 15 grand just in case at any given moment. Yes. This was some kind of leak, some kind of like, cannot ignore this. Like this is going to get way worse if we don't spend this money immediately. And I was like, yeah, okay, maybe I don't want a pool anymore. Yeah, just like the amount of fucking water is a, is a liability. Anyway, um, what are we talking about this week, Brad? What's our, what's uh, our, what's our, what's our topic here? Um, how do we want to find this? We have a I list mean, of things. Okay. I'll just read what's in this Google doc. Yeah. List of products that were way too good for their price. And then I think that's, yeah, that's the fair. Title, the title that I wrote on the actual name of this Google doc is ultimate bang for the buck products. Yeah, for me, this is a category that's like there. Anytime you feel like you bought something and you've stolen something, yes, yes, like I want to. I, I want to feel yeah. like I'm getting one over on the people who are selling me this product. Like I want to. I want to feel. I want to feel like I am subverting their intentions for how this is to be used. Yeah, I feel like you're. That's never actually the case because, like, even even like I feel like. A lot of times stuff that like taking advantage of loss leaders, you know, like mm-hmm. those products that people sell at a, at a discount or at yeah. a slight loss just in to, order you in to the get store. asses in the seats. Yep. Like that is an intentional thing that is happening by the company to make you want to be in their presence. Yeah. And it they, doesn't happen so much anymore. They know they're going to lose money on that. It's part of their strategy. Yeah. But like, they're going to make is, that money back on something else that I'm not going to buy because I'm too smart to buy their, right. their bad stuff. Right. Like this is this is more stuff where you are uh, extracting extra value that was not necessarily intended. Not for all of these. Some of these some of these are just like, hey, this was an incredibly good product at an incredibly more than fair price. Like some of them are just like, hey, this just felt good to support this company because they made a great thing for cheap. But Um, some of these some of these are a little insidious. But like uh, so stuff that we talked about that we decided not to put in this category is like. The Raspberry Pi, which is an incredible piece of hardware. Like it's yeah. a it's a pocket-sized ARM computer that you can run Linux on and do all sorts of like stupid and awesome single-use computer stuff. Yeah, like if if you're if you are Linux inclined, let's say, Raspberry Pi might be the most versatile computing product on the market. Like yeah, the number of, Raspberry Pi is all, all kind of in that same category. Like, I yeah, think. like um, yeah, totally. Like the, the number of different uses you can put those things to for the price is just kind of Ludicrous. Yeah, like but. the fact that you can get a ten dollar computer that does that runs your lights in your house is bonkers. Anyway, right? But we're not talking about that. Yeah. Uh, I, I want for me the beginning of this of this experience. Well, there were two things in the nineties that really leapt out to me. Um, one was Radio Shack had. Uh, I thought it was just one model, but from talking to people on Twitter today, it seems like it's a bunch of different models over like the most of the nineties. Of like just bookshelf indoor outdoor speakers 
that were 20 bucks a piece and were awesome for 20 bucks a piece. And they, they developed kind of a cult following. Like um, a bunch of people said they took them apart. They put different drivers in them. They uh, changed, changed different bits and pieces about them. And uh, some of them people are even still using them now. And it yeah. was like, the, like those were the speakers I, I got when I got a stereo from my room when I was in like fifth or sixth grade or eighth grade or something. Yeah, there, there are, I assume these are the ones, there are some on eBay that are now listed as vintage, vintage Radio Shack indoor outdoor speakers. I assume these are the ones you're talking about. Were well, they so kind of the, ugly? They had different, they were definitely ugly. Okay. They had different grill designs based on year to year. The ones that I had were just like a flat metal grill with a with a wooden case or metal case maybe. And uh, yeah, they were awesome bookshelf speakers. They got really fucking loud. And I had my dorm room and I kind of wish I still had them. Uh, I mean, but hey, I, I gave yeah. them to my sister, I think. I can't as, as, as we will cover later in the episode, good speakers are good speakers. It doesn't matter how old they are. It's true. I swear. Just because they're beige. Get off my back. <laughs> they still work. Look, your little cubes are good speakers. We'll talk. Yeah. About, but but yeah, like like so that's like the epitome for me It's like I've walked out of Radio Shack that day and I bought a spool of speaker wire to go with them. And I was like, man. These are some awesome speakers for 20 for 40 bucks. Right. Like just getting a thing that is, is a is way better than the price. B is like you're covered now for that need for whatever the need is. It's like, I can't believe how good this thing is for the money I just spent. And like, I'm not going to have to buy anything else because this just does everything I need, you know? Yeah. Like that is a great feeling. You said it was just what you needed. I lived. It was exactly. Yes. Um, I live for that feeling. That is, there's no, there's no greater joy in life to me than finding the thing that is way more bang for the buck than it should be. Yeah. And and so like the next one of those for me was price watch. I think price like, watch. Do you remember price watch? I, I, the name is definitely familiar. I don't remember how much I used it. What era so, was that? So price watch was like late nineties, early two thousand. I, I think I used that. And it was, I found out about it probably from quake sites like blues news or shack news or something like that. Okay. And it was a, it it basically was a search engine that searched a network of screwdriver shops for hardware component prices. So you could buy like a case from one place and a CPU from another and a memory memory from another. And it ended up creating like these screwdriver shops that ended up being like regional wholesalers for computer hardware instead of just like a local computer shop. Right. And you would like somebody would have the relationship with Diamond. So they would have they would have like white box OEM. It was like it was a way to get OEM hardware at OEM prices instead of paying retail prices for like new video cards and new CPUs and stuff like that. I think, okay, the way you were describing this, it is entirely possible, even likely that the price watch is how I built my first PC. Not, not I, the first PC we ever had, but the first one I built from OEM parts because I was all about the brown box unlabeled OEM stuff. Yeah. When I got into PC building in the late 90s and 97, I think is when I built the first one from scratch and I'd there's a good chance price watch was the conduit. Now that you mentioned it, that was, that was where it, and this is not the site that the, the move, the airplane ticket place that, that William that's, Shatner advertised. That's, for yeah. That's price, price line. line. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so price watch, there was another one before it that I can't remember the name of, um, but price watch was the big one. And like, like I would, there was a period of time in my life when I was building computers for a bunch of people at the university and like I would get up every morning and look at memory prices and just speculatively buy memory <laughs> because I knew somebody would order computers. And and like it was a fun game too, because like you had to like 
you wanted to minimize your shipping costs because shipping used to cost money, remember? Mm-hmm. So you'd like you'd be like, okay, I'm gonna pay ten dollars more for this hard drive here because it'll bundle in the the shipping costs I'm already paying for this case and the and the RAM from from these guys in Nebraska. But if I get from the place in San Jose, I'll get the CPU and the video card there because they got better prices than anybody else. God, it was that's awesome. Fun. It's hard. It's it's been so long. It's almost hard to remember the time before free shipping or like very very cheap shipping because yeah, like shipping per order could easily be like twenty bucks, right? Oh yeah. At that point, twenty five. If you wanted it in less than two weeks, for sure, it would be twenty right. bucks. Yeah. And just just think about like of all the anti competitive shit Amazon has done, and I use Amazon a lot, so I'm no place to talk about this. Like devaluing shit, using their scale to devalue shipping in everybody's minds is maybe the most evil because it means that be nobody right. small can compete with them. Yep. Yep. It's dude. I mean, that's a whole episode, right? Like Amazon's monopolizing effect on retail and what it's done to any other possible uh, access to retail. Sears 2.0, Brad. Right. Like it's just it's 21st century Walmart, right? Like yeah. it just came anyway. in, <laughs> came in and destroyed. Anyway, yes. Different topic for another day. Yeah. Um. You know, I guess late, late nineties PC building leads right into what I consider the Ur example of this thing. I think so. Like it is really the focal point of this whole episode. (laughs) I know we've touched on it maybe early on in the run of this podcast and a little bit more here and there. So we're on 300 a dude. So that was a 300 megahertz processor, low cash, single die slot. It started as a slot, ended up as a socket, I think. Yes, I think Um, that's right. I think that's right. And you could do, it was when they started locking multipliers, right? On cheap CPUs, but you could overclock the bus. Is that how it worked? I, you know, I thought I would just remember everything about this going into this, but I actually don't remember the mechanism of the overclock. Now there were, there were basically two ways to overclock back then, right? Yeah, there, there was. So things have gotten way more complicated with CPUs, right? These days in terms of how the speed is achieved. Mm-hmm. But, but back then, it was literally just a function of front side bus and, and multiplier, right? Yeah, you multiplied was, one by the other. And then so RAM you, ran at the front side bus speed. Right. So that was the front side bus was, you know, it was generally like 100 megahertz, somewhere around there, right? Well, well it was Bulp. 66 for the 300A. Was it? By default. Oh, yeah. and that's how you overclocked it, right? Yeah, so it was a 66 times a 4.5, which gets you to 300 megahertz. So, so yeah, you would, you would just, you would have a, a bus speed and then you had a multiplier, which is just an arbitrary number to multiply the bus speed by to get your CPU frequency. Yeah, that's exactly it. So, so was and, it raising? They, so, it was, they, so they started locking. It used to be that you could just, uh, like for the, to go from a Pentium 60 to a Pentium 66 or a Pentium 90, you could change the multiplier usually by moving some jumpers. Yes. That was but my then, first overclock. I, uh, we got a, we got a Pentium 75. I think I've, I've told this story before. Well, I'm sure but, we have new listeners. There's new, new uh, people every day. Shout out to shout out to Mac at I cannot remember the name of that little PC shop in 1995 ish, 96. He taught you how to do it. We bought a Pentium 75. And before we took it out of the store, he was like, hey, let me show you. He was like, he was like, hey, kid, let me show you something. You want to know the juice? Like he literally showed me like he pulled the side off. He was like, if you just take this little jumper here and you move it over one pen. Now it's a Pentium 90. <laughs> and I did it. And I totally did it. And that was, you know, that was when CPUs didn't have really cooling of any kind. It was, you know, oh god, definitely no active cooling, no fan. But there really wasn't even a heat sink. Like it was in one of those ceramic packages. I don't know if that counts as like a heat dissipator. Well, in that some was way. that was how the all the pre like Pentium nineties I think shipped. 
Right. But was that, was the ceramic there for heat dissipation at all? Or was, I mean, probably it helped. I don't know. Okay. Point, point being, I think, I mean, that machine became very unstable over time. (laughs) Weird. Uh, Yeah. Who would have thought? What Um, a coincidence. Uh, but so, okay. So the, so the 300 a overclock was a, was a raising the bus situation. Was that right? So, so yeah, the 300 a was when you had to switch to changing the bus speed, which was traditionally unwieldy. And on the Pentium twos, which is, I think what the range we were in at 300 megahertz, the remember they were packaged on that slot and the L2 cache, I think usually ran at half speed. So of the half of CPU clock speed. Okay. So, but the Celeron, because the se- the cache was integrated on the die, the reason it was neat was it ran at full speed. The L2 right. cache ran at full speed. That's so right. So even though you had kind of a small L2 cache, um, it would run at 450 megahertz when you did this overclock. And it made yes. it hella fast. Dude, not only hella fast, but just an insane value. I, I So I, I just checked the math here just to make sure. So yeah, it would have had a, a multiplier of 4.5 because yeah. at, at a 66 megahertz bus, that gives you 300 megahertz. But if you up that to 100, obviously you're at 450. Um, I don't. Well, there was a, the, so there was a Pentium model that did, had that did the same math. The, uh, and there were specific uh, lot numbers or, or uh, um, models of the Pentium 2300 that would do the same thing. Uh, the SL2W8 is the one that I bought. That was a Shack News recommendation, if I recall right. And uh, that thing ran at 450 megahertz the entire time I had that computer. It was fantastic. But the but again the L two cache was half speed on the Pentium twos. Yeah, I'm trying to. I'm looking at a 1998 article on a non tech written yep. by Anand himself. Uh, I'm trying to figure out what this thing shipped at price wise because this was the. I think they were 150 or 200 bucks. They were really cheap. They were very cheap. But also, this was the year I entered college, and this was right around when Quake Two came out mm-hmm. and Unreal came out, and a lot of broke college students like myself were scrapping for you know, scraping for, for computing power. Like it was just the most insane value. Like it was just like manna from heaven to go online and read these articles about like, Hey, you can buy this super cheap Celeron and actually overclock it to like as fast or faster than the equivalent Pentium two Pentium three. Even the, the price of introduction was 149 bucks. Dude, that's even today. That's, you know, I I mean that you, yeah, you can't like the, that's like uh Ryzen 3600 pricing basically. Right. Yes. That's, that's wild. Also like, is it worth touching on? That was right around the time that Intel CPUs went to the slot design briefly. It is. Well, like I, well, which was just ridiculous. It was, it was, it was a weird choice. The Celerons came without a, a, a box around the slot. Like the Pentium, Pentium twos had like a cool plastic chassis around yes, it so they, it looked they looked like, like a cartridge yeah, they looked like a video game cartridge yeah the the celerons were just raw boards yes. in my experience i think you had to strap a fan on yourself if i remember yeah it was a process uh eventually the thing that was cool about the celeron 308 was such a successful thing they eventually put it in just a normal die a normal like a socket uh, pin package design. socket yeah. yeah and like the taiwanese motherboard manufacturers went crazy with that thing to the point that at some point i think abit made a dual Celeron 300A um, motherboard right. called the BP6 that was responsible. Like that, that, that literally is why the 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 multiprocessor stuff was burned out of future consumer Intel chips because they didn't want people putting consumer chips. They wanted to sell Xeons if you wanted mm-hmm. multiple CPUs on one board. Um, it was it was a. Uh, 
the Celeron is an incredibly, the Celeron 300A is an incredible, like so much of our early R's traffic was on Celeron 300A related <laughs> articles. <laughs> Believe it. I probably gave you some of that traffic. So, so like it was probably the first time we were on Slash Shot. It was probably the first time like we had anything that hit, hit any kind of, like we didn't call it going viral back then, but any kind of virality threshold. Sure. Because uh, we did a Celeron overclocking guide that was really, really popular. What was anyway. what was the, the 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 logic behind the transition to the slot design? Wasn't it like a copyright thing? Were they trying to subvert AMD using their socket? Well, okay, so yeah, the official line was they wanted to do bigger L2 caches than they could fit on a single die. Because the reason the problem with the Pentium Pro was that the the L2 cache and the CPU were not testable until they were joined to each other, and they were joined uh, they were built on separate dies and then joined in a, in a single package. And, um, that Pentium, you didn't know if one was bad until you'd done that. And once you'd done that, it was irrevocable. So the yields were terrible on the Pentium Pro, which was full speed L2, full speed CPU, L2 running the full speed of the CPU. Um, when they put on the slots, they ran the L2 at half speed, but they could put a lot more L2 on because there was a ton of space and it quickly became a non-issue because the process tech advanced to the point they could just put the, the L2 on the die itself, like by the Pentium four era. So, okay. Do you, and you buy that line? Like that, that sounds legit. No, the line was, they wanted to fucking kill socket seven because like that's, that's, they, some the Cyrix could make shitty chipsets that increase their support cost. Right. Like that was, that was my guess. Was I, was there even something around copywriting the slot design? Like they, they yeah, the, the slot was patented and they didn't let anybody else. Or patented. It. That's yes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It was yeah, a ridiculous so, situation. So, yeah. Socket seven was open and you could, Anybody, as long as you wrote the right chipset and the right microcode, people could clone the Intel chipsets. And at that point, like literally, you would buy a Cyrix chipset for an Intel CPU, and it, the thing would run like shit, and it would crash all the time. And I'm sure it caused them an unbelievable amount of support yes. calls. So yeah, anyway, slots, slot one and slot two. Is that right? I think that's how they, they identified the, slot two. The, yeah. the in the brief window before they went back to sockets. Yeah, and then they went to BGAs pretty shortly after that. Ball, don't pins. tell me ball, ball grid array ball, ball grid arrays yeah can we talk about the duran i never had yes. one of these so i did so like i was in that that also occurred a short two years later so i was still in college still trying to play a lot of quake on the cheap Weird. um and like i'm torn uh i hmm. like natalie and bruglia yes extremely she yes we we talked a lot about you're all seasons. out of faith Yes, we're CPU. We're all out of faith in Intel. I'm moving to AMD for let's say the next ten years or so. I mean, that was the that was the time for that. That's Intel, what I, yeah, absolutely. Pentium, Pentium Four. They like Intel made a real. Well, we don't need to get that's the whole the the Pentium Four story would be a good. We could do a podcast on that too. I would love to hear about that stuff because I tapped out. I I went from a Celeron 300A to a Duron 600, and that was the beginning of my AMD phase. Which well, it, I, th- I think I'm about to enter a second AMD phase here in the next few months, but. Yeah, AMD looked at what was coming and they were like, well, we can't compete with Intel on process. So what do we do? And they came out with the Athlon and the Dura and and like that that family of chips. And they were yes. they ran yes. great and they that, were reliable. And that early era of Athlons and Durons was amazing. Um but so, so what was the Duron? What, what was the Duron? Why was the Duron 600 special? Duron, so Duron was to Athlon what Celeron was to Pentium. It was okay. the budget. It was the budget line of the flagship. The like budget version of the flagship line. Hundred bucks, say. Two, uh, hundred and fifty bucks, two hundred. Yeah, bucks, I'd have to. Around there. I'd have to look up the the price. Oh, here I have the pricing right here in front of me. Wait, really? How much was, was it? it? 
did I really pay $112 for a Duron 600? That's that sounds that seems right. Impossible. Those chips were cheap. They were, f- dude. So similar situation. Um, the overclocking mechanism may have, in fact, have even been the same. I forget if it was raising the bus. No, I, that might have been a multiplier. Un- actually, yes, that's exactly what it was. I'm sorry. Okay. I'm, ta- I'm talking through my memory in real time here. Um, so that came out in 2000. Okay. And there were Durons from 600 to 950 megahertz. Okay. Um, the multipliers on them were locked because, again, that's how CPU speed was determined back then. It was just a function of bus against multiplier. So you're buying this chip, and if you bought a Duron 600, you were buying a chip that I, I assume was, yes, actually, I've got this table in front of me. It was a 6x multiplier on the 600. And you couldn't change it unless Uh-oh. you took your CPU package and a mechanical pencil, or if you really wanted to be fancy, I guess you could solder it if you were good enough. But a straight, the straight up mechanical pencil that I used in class in college was good enough to just draw over these two, or would you call them traces on a CPU package? I'm not sure. The, it was these like two, con- to two little two tips two, of uh, two different resistors or something. Right? I, I guess that's what it was leading to. There were just two little contact points on the top of the package, two little wow. metal metal dots, right? And it worked. Literally, you just needed something conductive to connect those two contact points, <laughs> which the graphite was. And all of a sudden that unlocked the multiplier on the CPU and then you could raise it all the way up to 9.5 wow. to, to get a to get a 950 megahertz CPU instead of the 600 one that you get just bought. 50% performance for, boost for barely over uh, $100. Yeah, so it's basically the same as the Celeron. So mine mine was stable at 900 for years. Uh, wow. 950, 950 was not unheard of. I didn't I couldn't get it stable, but I was happy. I was very happy with 900 that played a lot of quake. I was able to run my SL2W8 at 500 megahertz for a really, really long time. And then when it got unstable, I replaced it with two Celeron 300 A's running at 450 megahertz in Man. 96. That was a tough. weird motherboard. Man. Like um, the, the idea of doing physical multiprocessor is so exotic at this point. It was, it was, the machine was really, really loud. And in order to like Windows 90, the Windows 90 X kernel didn't do multiprocessor SMP. Right. So there was that's no right. multi-core support. So you know that's so why you needed NT4? I had to use NT4 and then later Windows 2000 on that in order to get any benefit from it. And also, because no sane people were doing SMT, SMD on on like normal gamer hardware, like the Sound Blaster drivers for dual CPUs were garbage and <laughs> would blue screen all the time. So Amen. like it affected every it was it was a huge, huge pain in the ass, but it was really cool. How bad do you want that speed? I love the speed, man. Uh, it's funny. The overclocks back then, like they, they spent then and just to be clear, these overclocks happened because they would basically make the same CPU and then they bin them at the yeah. end of the end of the process to see how fast they run. And if the market demand for the cheap parts outstripped the market demand for the for the fat higher end faster parts, they would just figure out a way to lock the the lower end part to only run at the lower end speed and then sell it at the cheap price because it yeah. was same silicon either way. Um, it was, I, bought it was, a pair, I bought a pair of headphones, Brad. I'm sorry. Yeah. Can I, can oh, we yeah. real quick before we move on? Um, so I tapped out of overclocking, I think after the Durant, if I'm not mistaken, I don't know about you. I was like, using computers for work and I couldn't afford downtime at that point. So yeah, like, yes, you, you were in a position where you just had access to a ton of hardware. Like I, I was in a similar spot of like, okay, and now I'm covering games professionally. I just want this computer to work. And not have to worry about it being unstable and stuff like that. But also, 
Like, have you kept up with the scene? Like, I feel like overclocking has gotten a lot more complicated these days, or I don't know if it's that or if I just spent the time when I was younger and had the time to understand it. And now I don't. But like, there are a lot more variables in there now. Well, so the high end overclocking is much more complicated. The weird thing that's happened is everybody has an overclocking utility that they kind of, it's like, it's not even like officially unofficially supported or unofficially officially supported. It's just fucking supported. Like you can download the Intel extreme tuning utility for your Intel CPUs and it'll be like, we're going to run some tests and we'll let you know how much we can overclock. Oh, you get 200 megahertz. Plenty, Plenty of people will tell you exactly that. They're like, Hey, it's basically like click a button now and it'll just do it for you. So why not? But like, yeah. I don't know. I, I'm. I mean, the returns are so diminishing. That's the like, that's the you, big difference. When you really get down to it, you're not getting that much more. Like, the, yeah, that that's exactly like. Especially, like the, especially in a, in an age where the hardware we have is running games at 100 to 140 frames per second comfortably in a lot of cases. Like, yeah, back back then it was it was much more of a struggle to eke out every extra frame back then. Yeah, you were you were doing good to hit thirty frames a second in Quake when some of these some of these chips were new, right? Like, it, it was it was um, it was a little bit of a different time, yeah. and and like you said, like getting a fifty percent clock increase was worth was worth taking your pencil out and making the mark on the CPU. Absolutely. That was huge. Like well, now, also you were only out one hundred and twenty five bucks if you torched the CPU. So right, right, but also now, like you know, you're talking clock speeds of like what three to four gigahertz, like. Yeah. Extra extra 100 or 200 megahertz is not really worth it if there's any chance of instability. Yeah, we're not going to go. You're not going to go from three gigahertz to four point five gigahertz uh, at this right. point. Yeah. Um, and, and also for me, I was evaluating software and hardware and all sorts of stuff. So if I made my machine unstable, then I couldn't I couldn't make value judgments. Like if I had an unstable machine, I couldn't make a judgment about the stability of a game or a piece of hardware or drivers yeah. or some software package I was testing. It's totally the same thing for me. Like I couldn't I couldn't afford to blame a game for being crash prone. Yeah. When it was actually my stupid overclock causing the crash. Well, we, like we, so we did a lot of risk it. We, we did do a lot of overclocking in the maximum PC lab, but like it was on machines that were overclocking machines, not machines that were used for other. Kinds yeah. Of if, if you're if you're doing a B testing where you're also playing a game on a standard on a stock machine, that's that's. It's different. Yeah. It's safer. Anyway, speakers, um, headphones. Yeah. Let's talk about headphones. So we, I asked in the discord last night if people had categories like this and a lot of headphones came up uh, like a lot of a lot of stuff in. The, it seemed like the commonalities are, were often that it was in the stuff in the like 80 to 110 bucks range. Like the Sony um, Sony's had a long series of sub hundred dollar monitor headphones that are spectacular sound quality that like every studio engineer, you know, uses and yes. I've seen a lot of those headphones in my time. Yeah, in studios. Like they, they're just they're like on ear, pretty comfortable, nicely padded, pretty indestructible. And the other neat thing is that's the first place you get in the category where you like you can replace the ear cups and you can re- replace the head pads and replace the cords often, which is like the three things that fail on headphones are the pads wear out and the cord gets broken. And then you usually just throw them out. But if you can replace the cord, then you buy a new cord for 20 bucks and you're back in business. Yeah. Um, I bought a pair of Sennheiser HD 580s in like the early 2000s that fit that category. And it was kind of the first like, holy shit, these sound really good. Yeah. They're only like 250 bucks. So I think I'm, I'm Googling the, the 580s right now. I think these were the, the most common by far, right? Mm. I think. It was the first of the, it was, it was the first one of these, like there's a long line, like mass drop has made a whole business in making these kinds of 
like, hey man, here's a here's a pair of headphones that sound way better than they cost. Totally. Deal. So so I in that same period when I was getting like the Duron and playing a lot of Quake, I bought a refurbished pair of Sennheisers that were I think probably a little earlier than the probably the five hundreds would be my guess. Let's see, I would like the four fifties. I, I would love to know what those were actually I, they've, they're long gone at this point they might have been the 500s i think you're right so the but 580s I got, I, got them, I got them referred from somewhere so they were even cheaper than stock and like it was another one of those broke college student things of like i need headphones because i have a roommate in the same room in a dorm room and i don't have a lot of money so i'm gonna get these refurb sennheisers that everybody says are good and then like like the first time i put them on i was like holy shit like headphones are not supposed to sound this good like headphones are the shitty $15, like, you know, nothing pair that came with your Walkman or your Discman. Like they're that, not that, headphones. Headphones are not supposed to be high quality. Like, what is this? That was exactly it. The HG580s were a budget version of the HG60s, which is like the, they're one of the, one of the flagship Sennheiser old school headphones. And uh, yeah, like, like I'm looking at them. They actually came out at 150 bucks is what they launched at. So, um, I don't know. I really liked them. And they had all the re- replace. Like I've replaced the pads and the headband multiple times, replaced the cables a couple of times and they still sound great. I love them. They're really good. Good headphones. Good headphones are good to have. Yeah. That was, that was a definitely just a, a massive revelatory period of like, Oh wow. Audio can be good. Yeah. The same thing happened in like the, the mid 20 teens with the earbuds before everybody went Bluetooth when, when like, uh, everybody was like, Hey, my Apple, my iPhone's earbuds suck. What should I get? And there were a bunch of companies that were making really good earbuds that now have all gone out of business because they're really transitioned to Bluetooth and beats has destroyed and AirPods have destroyed the market. So that's a shame. Bummer. Um, I had this, I guess this is just sort of the audio segment of the show. I mean, like headphones were getting good around this time and computer speakers were getting good around this time. But I feel like, like audio is a place where this is, this category is really, like this, this concept applies because like every once in a while, somebody just makes something that's accidentally way too good. And they price it at like 200 bucks or 150 bucks instead of charging like audiophile prices for shit. Right. I mean, these have come up before because I still use them to this day, but the Cambridge Soundworks cubes, the power cubes, like I, was that the actual name? I think so. That's what we always called them. Uh, that was one of the first products that got a 10 in maximum PC, I think. Really? Yeah. Um, trying to find what the actual name of those was i don't know if they had a they might have just been like a it could have been it's probably just numbers F, fps 2000 was one of the models it looks like yeah uh, they, those speakers were so good that sound blaster bought cambridge soundworks for yes them. cambridge soundworks got gobbled up by by creative, yeah. creative labs but uh those original cambridge soundworks cubes i mean it was another it was just like the headphones of like we had always only had these shitty PC speakers that came with the PC, right? Or with whatever multimedia yeah. kit you bought that had a CD-ROM in it or whatever. They like were like, just, a, the, and those were always like beige plastic. They were like four inches tall yep. and like two inches yep. wide. Yep. And they sounded Every, like shit. And they usually weren't even plugged in. They were usually yes. weren't even amplified. Like everybody can remember exactly what those garbage hollow PC speakers looked and sounded Ugh. like. Altec Lansing. Yeah, the, that, I think they were like ACS forty eights or something like that. Um, yeah. Uh, I again, one of the Quake blogs was like, "Hey, I, bloggers, I probably Redwood was like, I got these amazing speakers and the first influencers is what those we pretty much okay. I'm gonna put this in the podcast. We should we should 
I would love to do a documentary series about those early Quake blogs. Sure. That's just, it's called The First Influencers. Oh, yeah. Because like Blue and Steve yes. Gibson at Chat News. Yes. Steve Gibson, Stephen Heaslip, if you're listening to this. Yeah. Uh, uh, Billy, Mit- Billy, what was uh, Billy? What was the guy from, from, from Died. Voodoo Extreme? Yeah, he passed away. Um, Billy, don't tell me. Not I, Mitchell. It's on, it's on the tip of my tongue. Uh, Anyway, Billy uh, Wilson, Billy Wilson and Re- yeah. and like Redwood at stomped were Stomp, yeah. so influential like, in like what became my computer fascination. Yeah, totally. Like that is absolutely where I was getting all these product recommendations that led to all these purchases. Um, but those, those Cambridge Soundworks speakers were my first introduction to a subwoofer. Oh yeah. Same. Like was, my, my Altic Lansings were my first introduction to a subwoofer and I literally bought them. I bought them from price watch because I was able to get the higher tier. I, I paid enough to get cheaper shipping by spending an extra 80 bucks on speakers or whatever for a big order of parts I was getting to sell to some sell a computer to somebody. Um, I used those Altic Lansings until I replaced them with a pair of Klipsch Promedia 2.1s, which I think are still the all-time greatest set of PC speakers ever made. Are those, are those still made to this day? Still or? made to this day. What? Yeah. Sorry, Pro, Klipsch Promedia 2.1? 2.1, yeah. Klipsch, they were... Uh, like a set of bookshelf style speakers with a subwoofer. Okay. And they sound incredible. Yeah. 129 bucks. Yeah. We did a, they eventually clips clips did so well with those that they eventually made a bunch of weird products. They made 4.1s, which is a weird category. And then they made 5.1s, which were sounded great, but died eventually because of some electronics failures. The funny thing about the clips is eventually they were just like, what if we just sold subwoofers for people who want some more subwoofers and you could plug the subwoofer into an extra port on the back of your other subwoofer. And they sent us like eight or 10 of them and we set them up in the lab and just did horrible things to people with those things. Cause <laughs> they were so silly. loud. That's a bit they, silly. They made your pants vibrate, Brad. Wow. Yeah. Um, oh, wow. Cambridge Soundworks was bought by creative in 1997. Really? It was before I started at Maximum PC. Oh, that's crazy. But uh, those original power cubes or whatever they were called, you know, if people haven't seen them, they are literal tiny little cubes. They are very small for speakers to sit yeah. on your desk. And the subwoofer goes underneath the desk out of sight. And like at the time, I was not even acquainted with the concept of separating high and low frequencies. No, that uh, was uh, I. Hmm. Yeah, I guess but, that was new. But I but that, I distinctly remember the first time I plugged those things in and played anything out of them. And I was just like, holy shit. Like, this is this real? How are these tiny little things that I paid, like, maybe 100 bucks for doing this? I had a set of those on my bench at Maximum PC for years. And they were, I, I hooked the speakers. Like, we had metal, those metal frame, like, utility benches, like, utility shelves mm-hmm. that we made benches out of. And I had them just hanging up. I screwed them into the particle nice. board on the yeah. top. Yeah, because they have wall mount. Yeah, because they have wall mount holes. Yeah. And so the wires were all routed out of the way, and I just plugged them in when I wanted to listen to music in the lab or something. It was awesome. Uh, that's, that's great. That's great. Yeah, I've got mine. Good. I mean, I'm, I've got the ones I bought in 99 or 2000 to play Quake 3 in my dorm. Hell yeah. Sitting on this desk right now, still in use to this day. I, and then the subwoofer has been, you tell me if this is a bad idea. The subwoofer for these things has been plugged in and turned on for most of the last 20 years. It's not, and it's, it's, it's still going. It's probably wasting an incredible amount of electricity, but I don't think it's going to hurt them at this oh, point. Oh, wait, does it really? I assumed when it wasn't playing anything that it was kind of. That's from the era of, 
uh, energy vampires. So you should put the watt meter on there and see how much it's, see how much money you're spending Shit. on that. Keeping that I, warm. I thought that really sucks. <laughs> Problem is the power switch is on the subwoofer. You have to like crawl under the desk, turn it off, but maybe I should start doing that. Um, let's see. Um, do you want to talk about my, like when, when I was setting up to do streaming at home, Somebody, I was like, hey, what kind of lights should I buy? And everybody's like, oh, go get these expensive Elgato ones, which are very nice and very fancy. But then somebody else was like, hey, uh, somebody on Twitter, I wish I remember who it was. It's like, go look at Ikea because they have a bunch of like globe, paper globe lights that are like 20 bucks, uh, like hanging lights that are like decorative kind of like like whimsical kid room lights. And you put a smart bulb in those that's dimmable or, or even temperature uh, uh, color controlled. And you have a dimmable fill light for like thirty dollars. Wow, which is an incredible value. And that so, would replace something like a Elgato key light or something like that. You can or is a fill use light, is fill fill light a different role? No, yeah, fill, fill light would work for like I use it where I have the key light now. Okay, for a long time. So it's the 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 IKEA pairing for this is the Regolit and the Hema. Uh, that I think the Hema is the fixture and the Regolit is the like the poof the paper. The paper poof. They, they're yeah. kind of like Chinese lanterns, you know, like they, they sure. kind of yeah. they pack flat and yeah. you pull them out and it becomes a globe. Right. Um, Love a good Ikea hack. I don't I've never gotten super into that community, but Ikea hacks are, are fun. Black I, I want to. Yeah. If anybody has a good like loft bed Ikea hack, uh, I would love to talk because we're looking at that for my daughter. And I'm thinking, like, why not just put three dressers and some bookshelves under there and then. Put the bed on top of that. That's probably yeah. fine, right? Yeah, yeah. Gina's less I've, enthusiastic. I've, I think I've talked about it before, but I am uh, I'm pretty fond of that uh, IKEA Entertainment Center to guinea pig habitat hack that people came yeah. up with. Which, if we had more space and more piggies, I would probably think about doing. You, know, you could solve one of those problems easily. That's true. More piggies. Yeah, that's not hard to. <laughs> anyway. It turns out. Um. Yeah. Uh, let's see. You want to talk about, let's see, let's talk about, let's talk about rebate fever, man. Discount fever before we, before we get out of that late nineties window. Yeah, that was, there was a period of time when like you'd walk into fries and the person that was at the door would hand you a flyer and it would be like the, there'd be a page of shit you could get for basically free. If you were willing to jump through a lot of rebate hoops. And I don't know why that stuff. It was it was ridiculous for a while. Like, you, you want fifty CD ROMs, CDRs? Here you go. Fill out these eighteen forms and wait six weeks, and you'll get your money back. They cost twenty five dollars. My my feeling. This is just a gut feeling. Thinking back to that time, there was some kind of weird hubris or frenzy building toward the end of the nineties economically. You know that fed into the dot com boom. Yeah, fed into some of the other stuff we'll talk about here about like ludicrously cheap brand new high demand DVDs being sold on day one, like stuff like you're talking about here where you could just get like spindles of CDRs for free, essentially like yeah. so many, there were so many loss leaders. There were so many deep sales and discounts and rebates going on. People trying to get their foot in the door. And you I think, think it like, was a retail frenzy? Kind of. I don't know. Like I just, there was so much ridiculously discounted stuff back then and it all stopped after the dot-com bubble burst. It was like the the DVD thing. I remember like even Best Buy, which was a brick and mortar retail, traditional retailer, was trying to compete with like Buy.com was yeah. doing really oh, cheap DVD sales every week. Yes. 
there was like a whole DVD infrastructure that built up with like the digital bits doing DVD reviews. And then you'd click on a link there and it would take you to a buy.com thing where you could buy the discs and they'd show up at your house like five days later and you'd be like, Oh man, I've, I've, I've really wanted, really excited about watching lost in space. And then you'd watch <laughs> lost in space and be like, Oh, well, uh, that was probably we got, worth $4. We got, we got lost in space free with our DVD player. And I don't know that I ever watched the entire thing. <laughs> <laughs> Look, you got to go through the planet, Brad. That's true. Um, I dude, I distinctly a buy.com. Yes. Was huge for that stuff. But I distinctly remember getting stuff like the matrix and fight club and like how like big name releases on DVD for like three, $4 a piece. And just like, that might be the ultimate feeling of I'm getting one over on this company that is selling me these things. Well, and like, so I would go to Best Buy on the reg and just like the stuff that would end up in the $3 bin there was, inc- especially if you cared about old movies was incredible because anything that was a catalog title would come out and be full price for like a month. And then it would be $3 because it right. would just be like, we got to get this shit out of here. Yeah. So my memory of these online retailers was that they were doing that on day one. It was like. Wow. This this movie just came out and you can get it for next to nothing because we just are trying to get you in our system. Wow. You gotta get uh, that was, credit card in. It was a heady time. It was. I never got in on the free CDRs, but I remember that going around quite a bit. I did I did a fair number of rebates for like MP3 players and stuff like that. Back okay. before the iPod destroyed that market. Sure, sure. Do you still have any CDRs? Blank ones? Yeah, there's a spindle in my garage just <laughs> in case. I'm pretty sure I've got uh, like an unopened package of like 50 blank DVDs somewhere. It's funny. I just built this. I just moved my computer into this new case. It's the first case I've ever had that doesn't have a CD-ROM uh, an optical oh. drive in it since like 1993. I may never get rid of the case that I have now because I, it probably will be the last optical bay that I ever have access to. Well, the thing I realized, I was sad about that at first. And then I was like, oh, right. I can just go and for eight, $18 buy a five and a quarter inch drive cage. Yeah. Everything is external these days. I, I know. I get it. Yeah. It's not the same. It's I have two big fans and a radiator in front now instead. Mm. Brad. You have RGB though. Yeah. I vertically, nah, I vertically mounted my video card. What, what, why? Because it looks cool. I mean, it does look cool. I don't know. It also I've, makes the two the slots behind that are normally blocked by the video card available. So that, you know, that's not that that's actually me. that's actually a, a genuinely functional and good reason to use one of those things. I have yeah. I've heard spotty things about those PCI Express extenders. So I I once upon a time bought a three dollar or fifteen dollar one, thinking oh, oh this is probably good enough. Maybe it was it from was, you that I heard that. <laughs> yeah, it was not good enough. Is the TLDR okay? The sixty dollar one that I bought to do this that was recommended by the case manufacturer. Works great. Turns okay. out that's full good speed. Yeah. Good to know. So, yeah. Getting the cool. slots back actually is not the worst thing. Mm-hmm. Now that you mentioned it, if you have um, a half height card, especially it'll fit right in there. Yeah. Um, this is what I didn't engage with this next one. Yeah, I didn't the, either. Do you remember the cat leap? The cat leap. Cat leap. Yamakasi, I believe. You famously, you famously didn't engage with this because you were using monitors that were already 10 years old Dude, at the time that this would have been an option. Of what was I doing? God. Uh, I want to say from the Googling I did about this, it was around 2012 when this became a big deal. That seems right. Uh, Wes yeah. uh, Fenlon, friend West, of the yes. show, wrote an article for us about it on Tested. Yes. Also, shout out to him to for it. he suggested this topic for this episode. It's a, it's a good uh, call out. Um, uh, so yes. So yes. Yamakasi Cat Leap. Yamakasi was the manufacturer. Cat Leap was, the, was the model. Okay. Yeah, the model. Yeah, 2012 is when this really started kicking off. But so this would have been... Oh, go ahead. 
Oh, I was going to say the gist is uh, this Korean manufacturer was taking LCD displays off the panel, off the line uh, that presumably LG or Samsung or somebody was using. And instead of packaging them up in LG and Samsung shells and putting like nice scalers and good electronics and stuff inside them, they were just plugging them straight straight into a DVI interface and selling them for like a third of the price of a mo- of a comparable monitor. Just right? just just insanely cheap, right? I'm trying to find some. I'm I'm on a vintage 2012 forum thread about it. I'm trying to find what the prices are, but I, they were like stupid cheap, right? I feel like it was like 150 dollars or something for a yeah. for a 27 inch 1440p monitor in and 2012. This was like 1440p was like brand new at this time, right? Like it was. It was. This was yeah, the future. Was, that, that was a future resolution. It would have been. It would have been DisplayPort, probably not even, um, not even DVI. When I think about it, that sounds right. But, but they were, they were, like they were really limited, right? Like they didn't like uh, the scaler is the thing that lets you play resolutions. It's a different resolution than the monitor speaks. Yes. So without that, you weren't able to actually run it at the resolution you were looking for. It just didn't work. Right. So right? if you had like, something that would, if you had something that would only run at a lower resolution than 1440p, it would just display smaller. Oh wait, no, it couldn't even do that, right? Like, would it not even accept a signal lower than? It just would show nothing. Yeah. Okay. It, would, it wouldn't. You, well, you'd have to set the video card to scale. Right. And I don't know if had they started allowing that at that time. Like nowadays, you can set mm. that in like the NVIDIA control panel to have the GPU handle scaling and not even have to worry about using the monitor scaler at all. But oh, I didn't even think about that. I back bet, then, I bet that was, that was not, you know, like that was not something that was used to be available back in like 15 years ago. I don't think like that was a relatively late addition to the GPU feature set. Yeah. That's a really good question. I bet, I bet I'd have to look, I don't I, know. <laughs> I might be acquainted with that issue because I ran monitors for so long that could only handle a God. very limited number of very old resolutions. Well, so when I had my 30 inch Dell, the 2560 by 1600 one that didn't have a scaler, it absolutely was a situation where that was the only resolution I could run. Okay. Yes. Uh, like I couldn't plug devices in that didn't speak that resolution. Right. Which was a dual DVI, which meant it didn't work with some laptops even. It was weird. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so that was like Monoprice eventually kind of took over that business and like came into that market and like. The 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 cat leap thing especially was a little hinky because you you had to buy them from eBay I think yes I believe that that was one of the things that stopped me from getting into it yeah so there were a lot of counterfeits that were like that <clears throat> there were some really good ones and then there were some ones that like you could really hose yourself on yes. so yes um and then Monoprice got into it and gave you like a normal retail channel for that which was cool yeah um, I, I do I I distinctly remember the frenzy around these things and like anytime. Anytime one of these things comes up, anytime the like, this should not exist, this is insanely cheap for what it is kind of situations, like I have to restrain myself from buying into it. So I was really staring at this. I at know, the time. Well, we know it's hard for you to choose a monitor, Brad. We, that's, it's established. That's, you know, it's, yeah. Turns out um, I, should, I should have just bought something. We have a couple, a couple more quick hits that came from the audience, from the, from the Discord. Yeah. Uh, the GeForce 6800 GT to a Quadra 2000. Uh-huh. So this is a mid tier uh, video card. Like the this would be like mid to late two thousands probably. I think that, that would have been a quadro, right? Just to make sure. Quadra, we... quadro. Did they also quadro, have a quadro? Right. Quadro was a Mac brand. Quadro was a yes. Was the was the 
Yeah, it's Quadro is the NVIDIA. Yeah. So Quadro is the NVIDIA like like content creator. Yeah, it's the line. professional workstation card. Yeah, so it like had CAD drivers and stuff like that, back AutoCAD drivers and yeah. guaranteed precision. So I've always oh, okay. So is the were there actual physical like computational differences? I've That's I've a, always one I always wondered if it was a situation like the like those old CPUs of where like some were just bend higher than others, but they're actually the same thing. So on some of the cards, they had ECC memory. Okay. I don't know if that's the case for this one. I don't believe it was. The upshot was you could do a firmware update on this $200, $250, $300 card, and AutoCAD would treat it like a $2,000 card. That's a pretty good or upgrade. Pretty good upgrade, yeah. Uh, and for 600 bucks, you could get two of them running an SLI. So sure. To this day, there, there, are, you know, there are situations where you might want to be able to do that. Like I was... Um, when I was messing with EDID stuff on monitors last year, mm-hmm. which is how the monitor identifies itself to the operating system in terms of what it's capable of. And it, it's a way to influence the behavior of the monitor, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, the professional NVIDIA cards to this day in the control panel will let you fiddle with all that stuff manually yourself. Really? Yeah. Oh, so if you have, that. if you have a quadro or whatever, I don't know what their current line of professional cards is, but, um, there's a lot of remember. there's a lot of like niche behavior about the card and the monitor that you can influence on these professional cards that like I assume there's no reason technically that it couldn't also work on the consumer cards. They just lock it out of the drivers. Well, or they may they may do like different DACs and ADCs and stuff like it's, that. It's, too. it's possible. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so that was a good one. Twinkle Tweaky suggested that in the discord. Yeah. Um, a couple people mentioned the. Hey. Windows 10 had a free upgrade period right at launch where you could put any Windows 8 key that matched the algorithm, whether it activated or not in. So if you had like a pirate Windows 8 key, you could upgrade to a full legal version of Windows 10. That's amazing. Um, I I thought this was a good call out. Third party firmwares for routers was a good one. Yeah, yeah. Sure. Like I definitely I got like way more life out of my old WRT 54G. Well, and, yeah, the old, and the and the old N66U, both of those routers last way longer than they would have uh, with, you know, homebrew firmware. Well, in the in the time before, like high end configurable prosumer routers, you, you didn't like they gave you access to features that you couldn't get on a yeah. like less than thousand dollar router, right? Totally. Yeah, um, you could do traffic shaping and stuff like that on DDWRT and Tomato early on. Ah, uh, cool. Tomato. Um, tomato, tomato, tomato just had tomato just had such a pleasant interface as well. I, I liked it, but DDWRT was more powerful, man. You gotta, gotta get in there. I turned on my VPN tunnel and yes. tanked the wow. CPU performance <laughs> on my on my eighty dollar router. I chose poorly, apparently. Um, and then, like I, uh, my our friend of the channel Dan uh, introduced me to these five dollar nano drones that were available from AliExpress and Banggood. Okay. Uh, like they were little IR remote for, for, for rotor helicopters. And you had to buy, if you wanted like three that worked, you had to buy five of them probably, but they were still that you still would have spent half what it would have cost to get one that was from like Walmart or whatever. Uh, it wasn't very much longer after I saw these the first time that you started seeing those little kiosks popping up in the mall where some kid would be flying a drone around and doing like cool stunts and stuff uh, in the mall, in the mall, like through fair. Uh, but, but that was my entry. That was also my entry to Banggood, which led me to AliExpress, which was 
which like remain depending on what you're looking for remain kind of incredible so like bang so aliexpress is um it's i think it's short for alibaba express which is basically like a lot of stuff you find in like electronics markets and stuff like that in china or man like it, it's it's access to cheap manufacturing in china for products that aren't necessarily for a specific vendor or for commodity products yeah a lot of stuff so, you'll find you'll find a lot of stuff on there that is also available on Amazon for a significant markup. Like you can yeah, so like get a lot of the same stuff for way cheaper. Keyboard switches, for example. If you want to buy yeah. some keyboard switches, you can get the keyboard switches on AliExpress for like a third the price if you don't mind waiting two months for them to get here on a boat. Yeah. Those uh those little those little fanless x86 boxes that people use as like PFSense devices that uh, mm-hmm. like Protectly is the most um kind of well-known brand at this point domestically. You can get no-name versions of those on AliExpress for way cheaper <laughs> if you're willing to buy a no-name one. So my AliExpress rule is that I don't buy stuff with logic there that's I'm going to connect into the rest of my system. Interesting. Does that mean the the little RGB Magic Home light strip controllers I was looking at on there that can be flashed with Tasmoda? Of course, if you're putting custom firmware on there, that probably... It's probably okay. Probably negates any anything you would not trust to put on your network, right? But you are going to plug it into your computer to flash the firmware, right? Uh, I don't think it has an interface for that. I assume you do it wirelessly. I don't know. Yeah, so... Hmm. Of course, it would be on the network long enough to... I, I think a lot of people use those things. You could put it on a VLAN. It's probably fine. That's anyway, true. Um, like I, I hesitate to plug USB. I, 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 this, I may be paranoid... But uh, some friends of our Fitz, who is famous for not plugging USB things into his computers, <laughs> um, uh, has had he convinced me that it's probably unwise to plug things from AliExpress vendors. Since so, AliExpress is basically like Etsy; it's like a front end for manufacturers in China. Yeah. So, it's, like, you're not really you're the payments go through AliExpress, but you're dealing with an individual store, just like yeah. you do with Etsy. And it, it, it can be very, I mean, if you think it's hard on Amazon to figure out who you're actually buying something from, like it is damn near impossible looking at an AliExpress product page to yeah. see where something is actually coming from in a lot of cases. So Banggood is a little bit safer. They're, they're like an intermediary. So they buy the stuff and then they're reselling it directly to you for the most part. Um, and they actually do warehousing in the US even. So like sometimes you'll buy something that shows up like two days later. So you're not waiting a month and a half for it to arrive. Um, it has an unfortunate name, and when I whenever I see a credit card charge from Banggood, I think, oh, this is I, somebody signed me up for porn, and then I'm like, oh wait, nope, nope, it's just Banggood, it's fine. Okay, so speaking of which, if we're being irrationally paranoid for a minute, yeah, okay, I, I almost made my I first don't... AliExpress purchase recently. Ooh, what'd you get? Like I'm, what were you no, get? I didn't. I so what, aspirationally, I'm, what are you trying to get? Well, I'm looking at those light strips. I, I don't have any real use for them right now, but I would get those at some point if I have a spot for them. The other thing is that. Um, Extremely cheap PlayStation 5 side plates have made their way onto AliExpress. That's a perfect AliExpress purchase. Dude, 100% because those D-brand dark plates look fantastic, but they're like $60. And that's just a little too far north of my stupid cosmetic, you know. Are you going to get black ones or are you going to do like uh, like a purple GameCube color? So that's, so that's the thing. Like the, um, I, you know, I think D-brand may have some other decals or something. They may have other colors. But anyway, the ones on showing up on AliExpress now are like they have red ones. They have blue ones. It's like, what do you want? Uh, I would probably get black just because I like black electronics. What does but, it look like under there? What, what like do you if mean? you put a clear one on there, is it going to look cool? Uh, it's it's mostly just a big metal housing. There's not a lot to look at there. Uh, 
Um, That's disappointing. I mean, I think I've said it before. The thing I, the thing I'm super disappointed about is nobody has come up with a different shape of plate yet. Like all the replacement plates, whether it's the nice D brand ones or these no name ones are all like molded to match the ones that exist. Are you looking at your PS five right now? I'm looking at my PS five right now. It's like, a pretty intense cast, man. So I, I want something that just turns that thing into a box. Like just, you just want it to be look like a, like a like, Xbox. Not, I mean, I'm, I'm open to whatever, but something that doesn't require a stand, something that is just flat on the bottom. Like that's what mm. I want. Like make, make a new bottom plate that just lets that thing sit flat on some little rubberized feet without having a goddamn detachable stand. That's terrible. Please. Anyway, wait, do you do vertical or horizontal? Horizontal. Oh, mine's vertical. Yeah. Vertical. If you have, well, I don't have space for that, but vertical is vertical is way less bad. A vertical PS five looks kind of cool. Honestly. My, yeah. Mine mostly sits on the, on the desk behind the monitors. And yeah. so I don't even know it's there. Most yeah. Of right. The time. Like at that point it's fine. But the, the I think the horizontal in particular for the PS five is not very yeah, attractive. Cool. I can see that. Uh, anyway, these, the plates I'm looking at on AliExpress are like 13 bucks, which is like, wah. Like perfect. Yeah, that's the perfect, perfect price for something stupid. Perfect throwaway price to just make your console look like slightly cooler. Yeah. What are you going to uh, do with the? Then you have to store the old ones. Yeah, you put the old ones in the closet. I know it's like okay. whatever. But anyway, uh, they don't speaking take, of consoles. Well, well, hang on. They don't take PayPal. That was my irrational paranoia thing. Oh, just use like, one of the burner burner card like the card generator services. Is that a thing? Yeah. The, yeah um, my bank does it. My, and okay. I think I can do it through Chase for my credit card or whatever. Is, whatever. So we're, are you essentially generating like a one-time use yep. credit card? A one-off number? credit card number that's only good for whatever time period or whatever Interesting. amount you set usually. Huh. Um, that's kind of great. Yeah. It's, if you want to do some sketchy purchases, it's a really good <laughs> choice. <laughs> I don't even know that it's that sketchy. Although, I mean. AliExpress is pretty safe these days, I would yeah, say. Yeah, I, fi- I figured it probably was. Like I said, I thought I was being irrational. But you do get a lot of multi-week shipping times on there. And I know you're dealing with customs and stuff like that. The, the assumption, my assumption with AliExpress is it's kind of like my Kickstarter rules. Like I assume that whatever I'm buying from AliExpress may not be, may not arrive. It may be broken when it arrives. It may be unusable. So I don't buy shit that's more expensive than I'm willing to throw that's, away if it doesn't work out. That was the other part of the appealing uh, you know that's that's why thirteen dollars was appealing. Was yeah. also like ah, if this never shows up, that's okay. It's it's like I, I bought Joy-Con cases from AliExpress. Yeah, because they had colors that I didn't see on Amazon and I liked. And I was like, if this is if this works, great. And if not, not. The colors were great. I haven't bothered to take the Joy Cons apart to swap them out because it's such a pain in the ass. So it is a bit of a pain. Yeah. Um. All right. So yeah. I think we do. You want to call it there? Maybe we can. Yeah. I think that's. I think that's a good. I'd be curious to hear what people think we missed because I'm sure we missed some awesome stuff. Yes, especially if it's current, then it's something we can get in on. Yeah, like, <laughs> like, like, like let us know, man. I am always. Cool. We won't I tell am, everybody until I'm, until everybody gets theirs. Maybe shocked, you know, with my with my 15 year old monitors and 20 year old speakers that I love finding bang for the buck stuff that lasts. Hey, Brad. Now, do you still have that chair? The chair is gone. Thank God. The chair is gone. Thank God. I. It Our was long a, national nightmare is over. It was a the last time it came up when I feigned ignorance. It was still here. Okay, just just to set the stage, but it was and it was a it was a multi stage process. I'm glad that we've moved beyond this and can I took move it, on with our lives now. I, I sat in it a couple more times. Did you miss it? I not at all. It okay. was it was too old to have around. It was it was in pretty good shape for the for its age. It was in very good shape, but I played <laughs> played a couple of games from the era. Oh, in the chair? Yeah. 
to say goodbye. She's like, I'm going to sit in the chair and play World of Warcraft one more time. I'm just going to run around Elwyn Forest one more time. Did you play like a sad song like Time of Our Life? No, no. Okay. It turned out that both sitting in the chair and playing World of Warcraft were good for about five or ten minutes. And I was like, you know what? I'm good. You saved yourself a lot of pain and heartache there, I think. Your back thanks you for this in your ass. Then I took the chair down to the garage in the evening. And then the next morning I went down and rolled it out on the sidewalk. Did you put a sign on it? Or you just let nature take its course. <laughs> Dude, the free sign has been on it since May. May. Mm-hmm. May is when I put the free sign on it. Is it how, long did, how long did it last? Remember, you saw the sign. I saw the sign. I know. And it opened up your eyes that it I can't get rid of. This is so many things. songs today. What's just, going on with us? It opened up your eyes to the fact that I have attachment issues. Um, so how long did the chair last on the curb? So I rolled it out there probably about 7 a.m., 7.30. Okay. And I believe when I went down at about noon, it was gone. It's gone to a better place now, Brad. Somebody's it's, using it. It's making somebody else happy. That's, you know, that's all I can ask for is that if I don't need it anymore, as long as somebody else can get some use out yeah. of it. I, I hate throwing things away. Yeah, no. I hate throwing disposing things of bad. things. I, I don't know. Did you guys have this phrase in Tennessee? I like to get the good out of things. Nope. You didn't have that one? No, Tennessee, we just throw everything out. That's, we have massive was, landfills in Tennessee. Maybe, maybe that was a family philosophy. You just, you yeah. know, you always want to get the good out of something. Yeah, no. We, if, there is, we, if, there is, if there is good left to get, I can't get rid of it. Nothing we wouldn't throw away to replace with something slightly better. Um, um, yeah. So, so I, you know, let me ask real fast before we, before we end the show. Yeah. I've still got the monitors. Not because I... You could make a them. really big VR headset with them. Should I just go on Craigslist and say, hey, free monitors, come pick them up? You're going to have to engage with humanity if you do that. But, just, but, you know, you know, the thing you did for, where you said goodbye to the chair. I don't I'm not going to I can't put electronics out on the curb. I just can't bring myself to do it. It doesn't rain there. You're fine. Uh, Are you going to give them the cables? You're going to sell them the cables after the fact. Probably pretty hard to get a DVI cable these days. Yeah, I was going to say, also, I'm using one of the DVI cables. I, I, I'm a cable hoarder as well, because you oh. always find uses for things like that. I mean, if they're free and as is, like, whatever, take them or leave them, right? That's true. Like, that's the thing. I don't want to donate them because I don't want somebody to pay money for them because they're so old that they, yeah. might, they might crap out in a week. So here's your, here's your solution. What you do is you post on Craigslist a picture of the monitors. You say they're going to be out on the curb uh-huh. at nine o'clock on Sunday morning. Interesting. And then be there. Then you put them out on the curb at nine o'clock on Sunday morning. Okay. Don't put an email address on the Craigslist posting because hmm. the kind of people that are going to email you about uh, some free 20 year old monitors are not the kind of people you're going to want to engage with on the moment to moment. Probably. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, it- is the is the free as is not enough protection there of just like hey if you want these take them that's the end of our relationship i'm just saying you don't want to give them an opportunity for a long-term relationship ah man that's you know what i think you might be onto something yeah if i don't have to actually call this this is like the best of all worlds this is this is this is one thing that facebook is actually really good for i feel like next door has this too but both of those are communities i prefer not to engage with if i don't have to yeah um facebook there's a facebook group in pacifica that my wife's on that is like free shit and when you have like it's it's it started out as like hey i have kid clothes that i don't want to like they're not good enough to sell but there definitely is life in them so if anybody wants them just i'm going to put them in a box out at the front of my driveway come grab them and we do a lot of stuff like we we gotta we we pick up stuff that way we give stuff away that way and it's a kind of nice community thing so 
right. Yeah. Um, but this is the time, speaking of nice communities, mm-hmm. it's a good segue. It is. Uh, it's time to thank our patrons, our wonderful, the wonderful uh, tech pod patrons. And yeah, thank, thank you, patrons. Thank you, patrons. And also let everyone know that this uh, Brad Will Made a Tech Pod is a 100% listener supported podcast. We are here at the grace of, I think uh, we're at, hold on, let's see, like 2,700 and something patrons, right? 2,711 patrons. 2,711. 2,711. That's a good number. It's a good number. Um, 2,700 beautiful nerds who uh, support the show every month. Thank you all so much. Uh, if you would like to find out how to support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash tech where you find out how to do this. You basically you give us a couple of bucks and we give you either access to the discord or access to the discord and some other stuff like access to our monthly patron exclusive episode. Yeah. Which last month we talked about my drive down to Palm desert at length. Yeah. And your pool and my pool. Well, which I'm going to like when I hang up this call, I'm going to go get in the pool. Just so oh you know, my right? God. I'm so jealous. I mean, it's not your pool, but it's the pool that we're, it's my pool for the next two, two weeks and three days. Temporary but, pool is the best kind of pool. Yeah, it's a no liability, high usage. Um, but a, a very special thank you to our executive producer tier patrons, including uh, Andrew Slosky, the bunny fiend, Jacob Chapel, Joel Krauska, Twinkle Twinkie, David Allen, James Kamek, and our newest uh, executive producer, your patron, Paddle Creek Games, the Fractured Veil video game people. I think that's Chris Bono, but I'm not sure. <laughs> Bonus um, cover. Yeah. Thank you all patrons so, so much. Uh, yeah, thank for you. Your support. We hey, really appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. No, thank you. Thank you. Wait, are you thanking me or them? Oh, them. Oh, crap. I thought you were thanking me. Well, thank you too, I guess. I don't think you're thanking me for it. Hey, thanks, thanks everybody. But thanks, thanks, patrons. We really appreciate it. Yes. Um, the community on the Discord is fabulous. I like I came in, I asked a question at like five o'clock last night, and then had a fabulous conversation for like two hours about awesome deals and things that feel like they're stealing but aren't. Yeah. And uh it 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 was it's it's just lovely to be able to partake in like a community full of 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 good like our people have good brains brad yeah yeah they know a lot they know a lot about a lot and it's just it's a good it's a good place to find out about things or find out more about things they're good shares i would love it this week i'm gonna make a thread in i can't believe i'm making a thread i apologize brad i'm gonna make a thread in the this week's episode where people can share their best things that fit in this category okay like their best deals that feel like steals Sure. Oh, that's wow. I thought I had a title for this. Yeah. Oh man. I don't know. That's, that's not bad. Yeah. Anyway, uh, that's going to be the thread name. We may be the episode name. I don't know. I actually, uh, I actually don't have, you know, I, I have another title. I'll let you use that okay. one for the thread. I, I surprisingly don't hate the way discord handles threads. I really, I, I am very anti-thread on Slack. So yeah, threads but, on Slack are, are awful. But but I am kind of impressed with how Discord has done them. They're a little bit more, they're quite a bit more approachable. My my only problem is I just don't think to look at them, so I am missing a lot of conversation. But That's the thing that worries me. I do like them as a tool that mods can use to like separate out a, a thread that like a handful of people are going into, but maybe doesn't apply to the whole group. Sure. I think that's really, anyway, this is stuff we think about. Um, the Discord's fabulous. The community's wonderful. You should join and come be a part. Uh, we would love to have you here. Everybody's yeah. welcome. And uh, yeah, 
the address again is patreon.com slash techpod. And if you don't want to join the, the Patreon, tell your friends on Twitter or Facebook or, yeah. or, you know, if you're on Peach, let your Peach buddies know. <laughs> yes, yes. Hit up your Mastodon instance. Let all your federated friends know. Let the, let the, let the, uh, maybe not Gab. We're probably good with no Gab. Yeah, yeah. I got no more social networks, I think. Is Gab even still Instagram. You got your, you, you know, if you, want, if you want to drop a hot TikTok vid promoting mm-hmm. the tech pod, send it to us on Twitter where we'll see it and we'll let people know that you made a hot TikTok. Because I love to see a good TikTok. Um, but that'll do it for us this week. And uh, I hope you have a lovely week, my friend. Yeah, and same to you. We will see you all next Sunday. Bye, everybody. Bye.